Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Make History Dope Again. We are so excited to bring you spotlight number nine. Um, this is going to be a two-part spotlight, and it's going to look at the history of Native American schools, uh, particularly the government boarding schools. Um, and we're gonna we're gonna look at how these boarding schools. Uh, treated native students over the years and also look at how native american attitudes towards these schools changed uh throughout time so we're super excited for you guys to join us uh and thank you for helping us make history dope again So, gentlemen. What's up, man? How are you guys doing? Men. Now, by the time this comes out, uh, we're recording this on uh, winter break. By the time this comes out, it'll be 2021, baby. 2021. We're doing things. We are We are ahead of schedule. You look at us, actually, like having a schedule and sticking to it. And being productive. I think that's a faux pas of podcasting, though, to admit that you're recording for the future. Because like, you, you, you always want to make it sound like you're recording like right then and there, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah. So we definitely just broke that. We, what is that? The third wall. The third we just, wall, yeah. yeah, we just broke that. Yes. Um, I know there's a there's a, a comedy podcast I listen to. I won't I won't name it or anything. Uh, but the one of the uh, guys on it actually like got into an accident. Like he's fine, but he's like recovering. And it's funny because they have all this like content, like after the accident happened because it was all over Instagram. And so obviously like they record like in the past. Yeah. You know, so it's like yeah. Now, now, I hope uh, I'm going to knock on some wood. Hopefully that doesn't, you know, <laughs> mean anything for us admitting that Whoa. we're recording. But uh, I know like some we're going to get an accident. <laughs> I know some of the podcasts I, not, yeah. I listen to, they they break that third wall and talk about. I think it's I think it's it's it's, it's legitimate, okay. right? Yeah. yeah. So happy holidays. Happy to, holidays. Yes. To everyone. <laughs> yeah. Let's go back. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Hope you guys um, enjoyed your enjoyed your time. I, I know I'm really enjoying just having time with, with the fam um, yes. and just kind of life slowing down, and it, it's good when it slows down. Um, yeah, especially for you and I, Andrew, with the we have a break between grad school classes, so this is a long break. Yeah. because yeah. we a two-month uh, break. We, so. we took summer classes, and then we jumped straight into the fall, and so we had, what, two and a half weeks, three weeks? Yeah, and even the spring class, you know, for you, I didn't take a spring class, but yeah. it jumps right in. Jumps right in, and so this is, we actually have two full, this is, remember when, remember the, remember your first semester in college oh man you're like i got a month without school like what do i do yeah and then i know after graduating and joining you know the workforce as a teacher i miss that that (laughs) that break (laughs) there's something about it was just so blissful oh it's it's a month (laughs) absolutely yeah yeah well i think everybody in the education sphere can definitely appreciate the the break that we get to now have teachers and students alike we all need it it's uh it's not been normal to say the least yeah <laughs> it's yeah and i and i don't know if maybe we brought this up in, in spotlight number eight which if you haven't listened to go check that out andrew yes. did a fantastic job of you know talking about the wild west shows Thanks, which i think is yeah, gonna tie it. in uh pretty well to today's episode but uh we've all been teaching from home 
Mm -hmm. I think we mentioned that last time. And, you know, that's been quite a change for us because we all were, you know, in building, although students have been virtual the entire year. Right. Uh, we were in building teaching, but now we're, yeah. it's been almost a month, right? Yeah. It's been about a month. Um, it's, I mean, the, the convenience of just being home is, is great. But I mean, there's it's not, no denying that I, I, I miss, I kind of have a nostalgia for when like I used to go to work, yeah, you know? Yeah. I miss those um, conversations with coworkers. And yeah. Sometimes I miss my morning drive because I don't get to listen to some of my podcasts sure. that I would yeah. listen to, so. That's true. I'm way behind on my podcast yeah. since yeah. working from home. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, well, with, with 2021, uh, you know, new year. Uh, it's been a heck of a, of a year, 2020. It's been a long year. Um, what's something we can look forward to? Mm, that's good. Yeah. Good question. I think um, looking for creative ways to kind of uh, make changes. You know, mm. I think, um, you know, sometimes we can just kind of become entrenched in the way we live life and just the way we do things. And I think, obviously, this pandi pandemic has shaken things up enough to where... As we kind of, you know, move forward in 2021, I know personally I'm just going to have to be more creative with the ways I spend time with people, the way I stay connected with people, the ways I teach, um, like career-wise. Like, I don't think the way I teach will ever be the same again. Even if we do get back into the classroom face-to-face, -face, I think it's all it, it, it's going to be different. Yeah, absolutely. To piggyback off of that, I know for me, teaching is definitely going to be different in terms of how how I do it and also our kids have technology now um, our students have have laptops which they didn't have before pandemic so that definitely changes things but I think overall I just I have a greater appreciation for things that I took for granted uh, mm. relationships with people mm -hmm. uh, just going and being able to do whatever you wanted I know from a from a teaching standpoint those those relationships with students mm -hmm have really been hitting me hard of, mm. you know, I, I took some things for granted in the past, you know, I got super busy with lesson planning and things that in the moment, sometimes I didn't always stop and give students a hundred percent of my attention. Yeah. And I feel like one positive through this virtual learning is I've been giving them 100% of my attention. Mm. I definitely so give better I feedback. Up, I pick up on yeah. a lot more things like, Oh yeah, Johnny plays, you know, basketball. Mm. And so how was the basketball game? Mm -hmm. just being a lot better at that Susie she wrestles how was the how was the match yeah things that you know in the moment of teaching in person we've got all these things that we're worried about right sometimes we don't right. just take the moment to stop and pause that's perfect so I feel like I feel like that's going to be beneficial for me mm. uh, as it's kind of fostered these positive and good habits yeah what about you Andrew no I, I think I think uh I agree with all the education pieces and in our, in, in, in our district, you know, we were never one-to-one -one, meaning that, you know, we, the idea that, that every student could have a, a device was, it, we, we weren't even close to one-to-one, but -one. let's pie just say in the that sky for sure. it was pie in the sky. Can we appreciate that we will never see laptop carts again. Yes. <laughs> Death to laptop Dude. carts at the high yes. school. Level. And we have, we have some old laptop carts too. So it's, uh, it's going to be nice. Uh, and so in, in a way that opens up a lot of possibilities. Um, things that, you know, friends of mine who, who work in, uh, like, suburban districts and, and they've been one-to-one -one forever you know mm -hmm. um and all the things they could do i never really could do them just because it was you know you you don't know uh do, do students have wi-fi at home you know it's stuff like that and so that that just opens up a whole mm. realm of of things that i always was like well that's cool but i can't use it you know exactly um yeah. and so i'm excited for that um 
just like societally, I think, you know, I think you nailed it with like, we took a lot of things for granted. And so when things are normal or whatever the new normal is, and everyone, that's kind of the cliche thing people are saying, but you know, like I, I just think of like, you know, sometimes on Fridays, like I'd, we'd, we'd have a double date, we'd have a triple date, you know, we'd go out with some coworkers, but after work or, you know, just, just little things like that, that we never really, I, you know what I miss being on a patio. Yeah. Like and not my own patio. Like being able to go to a restaurant and be like, it's nice. Let's sit outside. I miss movie theaters. You know? movie, movie theaters. theaters. That was that was my favorite. Yeah. Are they open? Just socially distanced? Are they? They are closed. Yeah. I think for them, the the biggest thing is because movies aren't coming out. A, a lot of the mm. movies that are coming out are being you know streamed on streaming. different platforms and stuff. So I, I have wondered how many shows like on whether it's Netflix, Netflix, <laughs> Netflix. There's the name of the episode. Uh, Netflix or Amazon or Hulu, whatever. How many of the shows we're getting now were like B level? Yeah, like they were. They've been in production forever, and they just they weren't good enough to make the cut, or they weren't you know whatever. I mean Tiger and, King. <laughs> right, sure. Right, yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, it's, it's, and, it, and it's like because now we're like what now? It was March, right? And so mm-hmm. a lot of things haven't been filmed since March, and obviously some projects have continued, but a lot of them haven't. Yeah, I was thinking, are we gonna have? Is there going to be a, you know, a gap? Yeah. In twenty twenty one, twenty twenty two, whenever, because there were there weren't movies being produced, so are we gonna see like a lull in movies? Or, or just some really goofy movies yeah. that never would have seen the light of day. Are we going to see pandemic movies? Pandemic-based movies? Well, uh, What's it called? The, Michael uh, Bay has Michael one, Bay right? Michael Bay has one coming oh, out. Yeah. Really? Yeah, it's about COVID-23. Ah. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, it looks interesting. Things, it's just, it's going to explode. It's just... It's, you, it's a Michael Bay movie. You ever seen a Michael Bay movie? Explodes, everything yeah. explodes. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, yeah it's, uh, <laughs> so we, we just lost our Michael Bay sponsorship. It's, uh, He's the guy that... That did Transformers, right? Yeah, and then Bad Boys. It, the mm-hmm. record goes back and back, and just all the explosion movies, all of them. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah all that them. makes sense. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm excited uh, for for our topic today, um, and I know for me, Jonathan, you and I went to that museum. Our, our local museum uh, had an exhibit on on uh, Native American boarding schools, um, and I realized how little I knew. Um, and then when you decided to focus on that for, for this class project, I was just really excited because, like, I, I knew you were going to find some great stuff. Um, so I guess tell us about what we're looking at today. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I, too, learned how little I knew about boarding schools. Uh, one reason I was excited to cover this topic is because it, it is something I teach about in my US-1 class uh, as we go through that Gilded Age period yeah. uh, where these, these boarding schools are created. But, you know, it's just kind of the basic, here's what these schools did, and let's move on. And so being able to really dive into it has been so, uh, so amazing. And I feel like I've learned so much. Um, so before we get into it, kind of talk a little bit about why I wanted to do this. Yeah. Uh, I've always been fascinated. This has always been part of the curriculum that I've been so interested in. Right. Um, and I feel like a reason for that is because students really get into how Native people were treated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because it's a, an educational setting, right. you know, their students, they can kind of connect to it's a it. It's world they, they know, at least, you know, mm-hmm. th- their piece of that, right? And, and, it's, and it's a lesson where you can get some really important points in a really easy way. Mm-hmm. Like, look at these photographs of the before and afters and write them, the students get it. 
like it's it's not something that's difficult for them to grasp. And right. so I've always enjoyed teaching this topic. Um, and so when Andrew and I went to that museum, it really just solidified this desire for me to to dive deeper into it. And so uh, so today, what we're going to focus on is we're going to look at the uh, they're called Indian boarding schools. That's what they're referred to. Okay. Uh, we're going to kind of zone in on, on two in particular. Okay. Um, the first one being Carlisle, which, yep. as we'll talk about, is the the poster child school. It was the first one. Right. Um, but the majority of the paper is going to look at uh, Haskell, which okay. for us, being from Kansas, Haskell is kind of our local, our local Indian boarding school uh, located in Lawrence, Kansas. And so... We're going to look right. at those two. Uh, we're going to look at the history of the school, see why they were created, uh, what their what their policies were in educating students, and how did the students, their parents, and their native communities feel about these schools. Yeah. Mm. Uh, the other thing I, I didn't mention uh, that I wanted to, to look at this topic deeper is as Andrew and I went to that museum, just learning that there are still four government-funded Indian boarding schools today. Hmm. 2020. So they're, so, so they, they're K through 12 or they're, they're... Um, I'm not sure if they're K through 12. Um, but they're, they're not like a, a JUCO or no, a university. No, they, they, they are okay. a... Um, so they're still, they're still, they're still here. Yeah, they're still despite here. Despite all the kind of infamous legacy, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's where, you know, teaching with students, this was something I didn't even, you know, know and, and, kind of shameful because easy research you would have found that out but i had just assumed that this indian policy of assimilation that we're going to dive deeper into was a thing of the past right and knowing that okay these schools still exist after 150 years right now there's only four of them but they're still here and so another reason for my research is trying to uncover well why and are these schools the same schools that existed 150 years and so we're 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 going to uncover that today. I'm really excited. Yeah, yeah, I think, you know, when you first told us about your project, like, I personally was still under the impression that it, boarding schools, uh, Native American boarding schools were a thing of the past. And so I think, you know, you're going to make it dope. dope. Maybe not dope again, but <laughs> relevant right. again. But, well, but the fact but, that they're still here. But, yeah. but I mean, we, we call this the series we do, we call them spotlights. Mm-hmm. I mean, because we feel like it's it's a period or a... a, a instance uh that has not been properly brought to light right and so i think talk about an important topic Mm. i mean and and i think i think you nailed it with you know even if we all went to different schools and different times and a different teacher the whole thing we've all been to school in this country you know what i mean and and so we all can connect to at least what our learning was like and so i think this is kind of a very famous example of uh you know some pretty atrocious, you know, uh, policies that were kind of passed off as, as education. Um, and I'm curious to see if, if how long that went on for, if it changed, I, I'm just curious to see what you have. Mm. All right, well, let's dive in. So we've talked about, you know, on this podcast through both Ethan's master thesis and Andrew, your spotlight number eight. Um, and even going back to, you know, the very first episodes of Georgie Wash, Washy George, of, of Native <laughs> Americans in the United States and kind of this this relationship between, you know, Native tribes and, and the U.S. government. Yeah. And so throughout, since, since the very first European, you know, 
step foot on North America, these cultures have been colliding, right? Right. right. You have the European or, or, or Anglo-American culture versus these native cultures. And throughout that time, there's been conflict over control of the land and, you know, this idea of manifest destiny, which mm. really drove the United States to continue to expand westward. And as they continue to expand westward, there's obviously an obstacle in their path, and that were that was native peoples. And so uh, we see various types of policy come into play. We see forced migration. We mm. talked about with the you know Indian Removal Acts of the 1830s. There's been extermination. You know the the Indian Wars, and then the most common, which was assimilation, and that is going to be a big theme of today's today's uh, episode is assimilation or trying to make the native peoples a part of mainstream society or at least look and act like mainstream society and so uh, my thesis for today the big thing we're going to look at is that although their existence is believed to be a thing of the past indian boarding schools continue to operate in the 21st century however despite their adverse history of these federally operated indian boarding schools native attitudes changed and communities grew to support and take ownership of Indian schools, such as the Haskell Institute, as a result of Native American self-determination movement of the 20th century. Okay. So they took it back. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, let's start with kind of the creation of these Indian boarding schools. And before we can really talk about that, we got to look at some some federal policy. Sure. Mm. So I'm going to take you to right after the American Civil War. Mm-hmm. It's the presidency of Ulysses S. Grant. Okay. And uh, before before Grant's presidency... The relationship between the U.S. government and Native tribes had been uh, what a lot of historians call kind of this treaty policy. Um, if you go back to the to the U.S. Constitution, you know, since 1787, Article One, Section Eight, which is referred to as the Commerce Clause, okay. basically granted Native tribes a degree of sovereignty. Yeah, it, it lists them as you know Native tribes in terms of taxation and trade. And so these native tribes had some sovereignty. And in order for the U.S. government to um, interact with them, they needed treaties. So they were they were treated like foreign nations, right? Absolutely. Well, we see that change during Grant's presidency. Uh, the Congress, the U.S. Congress in 1871 passes what's called the Indian Appropriation Act. Oh. And what this does is it brings an end to that treaty period. Uh, it declares that, quote, no Indian nation or tribe within the territory of the United States shall be acknowledged or recognized as an independent nation, tribe, or power with whom the United States may contract by treaty. So they just th- threw it out. Yeah, so basically yeah. that sovereignty is gone. And what this does is it gives more power to the, uh, to the Office of Indian Affairs, which right. is now known as the Bureau, the Bureau. of the Indian Affairs. And now, so- is that sorry to interrupt you? Is is that tied to? Because you got to think, you know, mid Civil War, Homestead Act is passed. Um, is that moved to that west? Is that tied to the people? Pe- people want to settle this land. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Civil War is so, over. You're seeing that that westward migration. Right. This is the same time of the the height of the Indian Wars. Right. Mm. And so this is the government's response to to basically you know take that land and and suppress these these native peoples who are fighting on the on the frontier right. well and and I, and I guess in a way you know the, the the nation is rebuilding itself 
a lot of division, a lot mm-hmm. of sectional division, but maybe there's some maybe they can agree on a common enemy. Absolutely. The north and south, let's let's unify over a common enemy. Wow. That enemy being native peoples. And it's such a blatant like yeah. policy. Like it's it's so um th- there's no like there's no curtain, you know? Like it's right. just <laughs> throwing it out. <laughs> yeah. Throwing it out. So that sovereignty is gone. The uh, Bureau of Indian Affairs or BIA is now overseeing native tribes. You know, they've got a lot of power on you know, how the government interacts with these native tribes. Um, and so what the BIA is going to use is, is they're going to focus on that idea of assimilation. That's going to be their, their bread and butter. That's going to be their policy. And so uh, it's within that same decade of the 1870s that we see the development of government schools. Hmm. Now, schools for native people have existed as long as Europeans came to this continent. They, okay. they were usually religious schools, okay. you know, missionaries, you know, living within the tribes, teaching these peoples English, teaching them about their religion. But we, we really see government schools in the 1870s, but they were they were on reservation schools is how they started, you know, right. on the reservation, uh, which is really important because if you think about it, these schools on reserv- on reservations, this, the students are still being influenced by their environment. Right. They still have, you know, they still go home to their parents. Right. They're speaking their, their language. They're still speaking their language. Right. And so there's that influence of, of mm. the environment. And so uh, these are the first government schools. But even then, there's a big, uh, there's a lot of uh, inadequ- inadequ- inadequacies mm-hmm. sure. uh, going on. There's a, there's a guy named Robert L. Brunhouse. Uh, he states that you know, these, these schools, these industrial training courses, they were inadequate. Uh, they were elementary level. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, they lacked sufficient equipment, sufficient teachers, and most importantly, they lacked an empathetic environment mm-hmm. for Native students. And so while these reservation schools exist, they're not very successful okay. at the government's goal of assimilation. Mm-hmm. And so from there, we're going to see... A big shift from reservation schools to off-reservation schools, and so and so this is once basically they're no longer considered sovereign nations, mm-hmm. and so and I guess that makes sense because when they're sovereign nations, right, you can have basically missionaries go there, right, but like, but now that like they're not sovereign anymore, now the government can say no, these are your schools, yep. right. Yeah, you know, when you have that sovereignty, if you don't like them, you could, you know, you, you can kick them out. out, right? Right. And now it's the government's, like you said, this this is how it's going to be. These are your schools. Well, okay. I'm just thinking of like the perspective of like you're a native person, and with the way that news travels and communication is in this time period in the 19th yeah. century, like just one day, like U.S. government officials show up and just say, hey you have no more like rights as like a yeah well, as a sovereign nation like <laughs> go do this and and in this class you know? we've we've taken exactly in this class we've taken you know we've talked a lot about individual tribal stories and obviously each tribe has their own take on this westward expansion kind of pushing them out um but there are tribes you know like the ute tribe in our last podcast who like really tried to work with they really tried to kind of be allies with the US government yeah. hoping that that would result in a really solid treaty that basically said, no, this land is yours. Mm-hmm. No ifs, ands, or buts. And so to think about like 
these tribes have been trying to work with the U.S. government so they could preserve their culture yeah. and have their own state. And now it's just gone. Yeah, I mean, right? there, there were no, you know, footnotes at the bottom of, of the Appropriation Act saying, like, except for these these tribes because they were they were our allies no, right it was right. it was all of them all regardless of, them. Right. of your history with us you so know. how many hundreds thousands of treaties are we talking about that have just been invalidated here yeah, absolutely, right by like, that one yeah by that one legislation yeah yeah so um the idea of indian schools off reservation has a really unlikely source uh, okay. and that source is a u.s army lieutenant by the name of richard h pratt who we've mentioned before in previous episodes. Yes, yes. So Richard H. Pratt, you know, U.S. Army lieutenant, uh, served in the Indian Wars on the Great Plains during the, you know, late 1860s, 1870s. And it's here that he uh, gets a a taste of these Native American relations. And he's, he's given a task during the Indian Wars and that is to oversee a group of native prisoners and and transfer them to Fort Marion in St. Augustine, Florida. Okay. And so this is in 1875. And so Pratt takes these uh, these native prisoners to St. Augustine and he begins to experiment with these captives by employing them in uh, in the town of St. Augustine doing various types of of jobs in industries such as bakeries, farms, sawmills. And he, hmm. he's trying to get them so trades in these trades yeah. as a way to, quote-unquote, civilize okay. these people. And he sees the, quote-unquote, success of, of, these, uh, of these people in these trades. And he then takes it a step further, and he decides to start educating these, these native peoples by holding classes within the fort. And so he mm. brings in some teachers, some local teachers, hmm. and they start educating these prisoners. Like, let's remember, these, these are prisoners. And, and uh, he, he wasn't asked to do this. He just kind of took this on his, on his own. On his own, yeah. They, okay. He was just tasked with, you know, taking them to the fort and kind of overseeing them. And while they were in prison, he was like, well, let's put them to work. Let's start to assimilate them. Okay. And uh, in his eyes, he sees a lot of success with this. And so uh, when the end of those imprisonments happen uh he wanted to continue and apparently according to pratt some of the students wanted to continue this education okay Mm. and so he was able to get support from both the government and from individual patrons to continue those students education at the hampton institute in virginia okay you know famous for educating booker t washington sure sure uh which it was a predominantly african-american school okay and so uh after doing this pratt you know he has this idea of Oh, I, I want my own school. Yeah. He becomes invested and enamored with the idea of Indian education to the extent of working towards the government to get the funds to start his own school. So wow. he's petitioning the federal government for a program or at least funding for mm-hmm. him. Yeah, he, he lobbies Congress. I, I knew he obviously is going to run the, um, the Carlisle School. Mm-hmm. I had no idea he kind of started the movement, though. Yeah, yeah. I had no idea. Wow. And so there, there are others at the time who are, you know, looking at Indian education, um, and a lot of these advocates they realized that the reservation schools had failed, and the main reason why they those reservations failed at assimilating was because of the continual relationship with their quote unquote savage environment. 
Mm-hmm. So and, and and failure being marked by they haven't assimilated. Absolutely. So they, they still have their part of their culture intact. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. And so there's a the Canadian Prime Minister uh, Sir John Macdonald, which Canada is dealing with the same issue with their First Nations people okay. trying to assimilate them. They they you know the Prime Minister basically declares that successful assimilation can only occur once children are removed from their parental influences. Okay. And so there mm. is a need for industrial training schools off reservation. And it's important to think about these are industrial training schools. These are schools that are focusing on a trade, not necessarily the typical education that, you know, your average white American would receive. These are focused okay. on, you know, trades and skills, not necessarily mathematics and history and so, things like so that. So thus the word industrial in so many of the schools. Absolutely. Names. Now is mm. that is that tied to um I guess, why are they not being educated in more of a classical sense? Is, did you come across to... I, I didn't come across anything that specifically talked about that, but I can assume that, for the most part, it's it's not that the government wanted Native peoples to be totally assimilated into, main, into mainstream society. Okay. This was an idea of, we're going to eliminate the reservations and bring these people into the cities. Okay. It was just, we, we want them to be American. We don't want them... We want to get rid of their quote-unquote savage, their native peace, their native environment. Okay. Well, and I think this also at the time period of like second industrial revolution, absolutely as well. Right. And so, I mean, you see kind of the explosion of factories and things like that. So I think kind of this sure. idea of now what I mean, this is just kind of a phrase that kind of comes up is like utility. You know, like trying to show the American public, like, hey, mm. Native American people can help in American society. I'm not saying that's right but you know kind of the idea of like right. that so the the technical education versus the classical education sure. which is i mean really always kind of been or for a lot of history has been associated with more of the upper tiers of society right well i i was thinking of you mentioned booker t washington and of course you know you think of the, the tuskegee institute right and and they very much focused on you know like cast down your bucket where you are and learn a skill you know, and and there's what's his what's his Very quote similar. about there? There's as much of a um, I'm gonna butcher his quote, but you know, you know, the quote basically he's saying there's as much honor and pride in tilling a field as there is in like going to college. And yeah, absolutely, mm-hmm. I just butchered the quote. I apologize, but so so it's it's very much that same mindset of let's learn a skill so you guys can, uh, I guess, pull yourselves up or yeah. or at least that's be given a place it. in American society. American society, is right? Much American capitalism, be, right? Uh, that's probably the best word. Kind that's of the, exactly the, the yeah. system, right? Like yeah. where the Native American people who have very much lived a, a different pace of life, not in a very capitalistic sense at all. How yes. are they going to fit yeah. into a capitalistic se- uh, system? Well, that's a great point. Yeah, that's excellent. I hadn't yeah. thought about that until just now, but yeah, I think that idea of assimilating in, in the terms of capitalism was probably a reason why it's focused on an industry. That was dope even. Awesome, thanks. That was a teamwork. <laughs> yeah. So uh, 1879 is when the first federal funded Indian boarding school opens its doors. And that is, as you've mentioned, the Carlisle Indian Industrial School, uh, which opened in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, hence the name. Yeah. And uh, this, this school is gonna become the model for the future uh, government Indian schools. Um, that are going to open its doors. Now, Carlisle is ran and operated by Richard H. Pratt. Okay. You know, he's given control of the school. And so here in a little bit, we'll kind of touch back and we'll, we'll look at what Carlisle did as we look at 
our main school today, which is uh, the United States Indian Industrial Training School, known as the Haskell Institute, okay. mm. uh, which opens in 1884 okay. in Lawrence, Kansas. Um, and so Haskell and Carlisle really are the two predominant Indian boarding schools of the late 18, early 1900s. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, now, when Haskell opened its doors, um, I think it was like the fourth school okay. um, that had been created at that time. It opened its doors to 22 uh, children. Okay. And by the time that first semester ended, its student population had grown to 400. Oh, my goodness. Um, and they <laughs> learned a variety of skills such as tailoring, wagon making, blacksmithing, farming, cooking, and homemaking. Now, at this point, is there, I mean, are they are they still learning? Obviously, they're, they're having to speak in English, mm-hmm. right? And so are they learning to write? And... A little, yeah. Okay. Yeah. But it's much more like functional skill. Yeah, just to just to get enough across to be able to read and, okay. and write. Okay. Um, and to clarify, the children going didn't have a choice, correct? Yes and no. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Jumping yeah. the gun. Yeah, a little bit. We'll get into okay. it, but okay. Uh, that really varied by tribe. Uh, okay. Sometimes the tribal elders were they they saw the writing on the wall. They knew that assimilation was okay. was what was going to happen. Sure. And so sometimes they were more willing to give the children to the schools uh, others as we'll look about look at uh, possibly at the end of part one or probably part two is the resistance to that yeah um so uh, within a decade of of haskell being founded uh, it is renamed haskell um it goes beyond it was a traditionally eight-year program um and it, it earned a reputation as the premier indian boarding school at the time mm-hmm. um but all of these schools, it's important to note that they really are a reflection of Richard Pratt's personal beliefs. Okay. Hmm. Um, we've mentioned before this quote by Richard H. Pratt, which really is kind of the the declaration or the the motto or the mission statement of most of these schools. And so in 1892, Pratt is at a conference and he says the following quote. He says, a great general has said that the only good Indian is a dead one. In a sense, I agree with the sentiment, but only in this, that all the Indian there is in the race should be dead. Kill the Indian in him and save the man. Kill the Indian, save the man. So that is no. that is the mission statement. Who said that quote? Was it maybe, I feel like that's a Tecumseh Sherman or something. That's straight up, up. Uh, oh, the general? The general. I'm not sure. I'm going to go and call it Tecumseh Sherman. Would say something like that. That's interesting. That would be. Yeah. I'm 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 searching it now. I'm calling it. But, General but, uh, Philip Sheridan. Oh, Sheridan, oh, yeah, Sheridan. Okay, okay, same period. Okay, so that becomes the kind of the the if you had to put a, a a phrase on the wall for all these schools. Now these schools aren't just not just Carlisle and Haskell. I and mean, there's many many of these mm-hmm. schools. Did you come across the, a number at its peak? How many schools there were? There were hundreds. Hun- really? Yeah. Wow. So really, all over the United States. All over. Uh, mainly in the in the Great Plains in the West. Okay. There there were few in the East, such as Carlisle. Okay. Um, but yeah, there were hundreds at its height. So, did you find anything as far as like why Carlisle, Pennsylvania, just seems so far away? Oh, okay, yeah. So it's because Carlisle was a abandoned military barrack, and so it already had the infrastructure. So a lot of the the, the building yeah. costs is already there. Yeah. Okay. And him being utility. Uh... <laughs> I'm just gonna, that's gonna be my word today. Sorry. <laughs> him being a uh, U.S. lieutenant, mm-hmm. uh, sure, 
as we'll see, he's going to run the school as a military. It's going to be very militaristic. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, the idea of kill the Indian, save the man is going to be a reference that we will probably mention many times uh, throughout wow. here. And so the idea of killing the Indian or the civilization process, uh, we've touched on this briefly in, in, in Andrew's uh, spotlight. But as soon as students arrived, this idea of assimilation and civilization occurred. Uh, students were photographed in their traditional clothing. And then right away, they were stripped of their identities by the removal of that clothing. You know, they were forced into identical military style uniforms. Okay. Um, Luther Standing Bear, Damn. who we mentioned in the in, in spotlight number eight he did so much you know uh, yeah and i was surprised during your episode to learn about his affiliation with the wild west shows and movies mm-hmm. yeah and, and now the reason we hear about him so much in this period is he he's a writer too yeah. right he writes I, I, he writes i guess they're all autobiographies or yeah yeah so um, you know his voice is one that's known his story is one that's written down and he goes to carlisle he, uh, yeah he goes to carlisle okay and so uh luther standing bear he, he recalls this physical discomfort of having to wear the clothing. He mentions particularly the trousers, the leather boots, and, and it's kind of humorous, but the red flannel undergarments hmm. they were required to wear. He, he, <laughs> he said that as soon as he got back to the dorm, he would quickly take them off and hide them. They were just so uncomfortable. That's hysterical. Um, hide them. Get them out of yes. my sight. Um, in addition, Flannel. yeah, so. Ooh, so really hot, itchy. He mentions they're itchy. This is Pennsylvania, so it's cold. Yeah. yeah. So you just think of the huh. physical changes that they're being forced. Oh, yeah. You know, through clothing. Right. Uh, you know, having to wear shoes where some of them had never worn right. shoes before. Right. Uh, super uncomfortable. I, I think it's that seems like such a small detail, but have you ever worn clothes that you're uncomfortable in? Like all day, every day. Yeah, that seems like such a small thing. Well, and and you you feel phony, right? You feel like it's not you. You know, it's and as these schools go on, it's it's the same clothing. It's passed down, so you're getting Ooh, old, hand-me-down no. clothing that may be too small or too big. I think the psychological effects there. I mean, that's pretty serious. Still, it seems like such a small detail. And, and it's it's pretty much as soon as they arrive, right? So yeah. it's really so you and and you mentioned this. I'm sure. I'm guessing you're going to mention this later, but. Like they get, they remove from their. They're they're not next. They're they're not on their reservation. Yeah, I mean, no. so they're, they're already in a kind of a you know stranger in a strange land, right? Mm. And then you lose that little reminder of of your culture, right? As soon as you get off. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah these these schools are are purposely located far away, um, as we'll mention, to try to prevent runaways. Mm. Um, so they are hundreds of miles away from home. Uh, their native dress is taken away. Ethan, you, you mentioned the psychological effects. So once those physical changes, like you know, changing your clothes and even cutting your hair, um, which doesn't seem like a big deal, but for a lot of the older boys, yeah. we're talking teenage boys, never had their hair cut. Yeah. Uh, this is a symbolic thing. You know, this is part of the culture. Right. Having that hair cut cut was a psychological effect. Uh, Standing Bear mentions that. It was mainly the older boys who would, you know, yell in disapproval, sure. would cry and weep sure. as their hair was cut. Mm. I think in some native cultures, the the hair is tied to like, like strength and like, like vigor. A warrior. Yeah, and so like to have it cut is to like be defeated, and and obviously I, I've, I'm I'm probably assigning what what's 
true in a couple tribes to all tribes so please forgive me there but i can imagine that 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 really has some pretty disastrous effects you know? absolutely you know the psychological effects are starting to starting to come into effect uh, i call it name roulette we mentioned this last time but this idea of as soon as you were in a uniform and your hair was cut it's a great name they had to change mm. your name and so on on the chalkboard were a list of anglicized names yeah. that you know you were told to just pick one and, and remember these these students cannot read so they don't they don't know what these names are they're just picking <laughs> you one. just got one huh so like <laughs> luther standing bear chose luther yeah. and that became his new identity uh, and so we've seen changes in clothing changes in hair yeah. changes in names and mm. all of this was sought as needed because people like pratt for some reason thought that those native clothing the native hair yeah. were obstacles that blocked the path of right. development and did he because he he tied them being able to stay on their reservation as like stopping them from i guess progressing absolutely and so for him like like those things are like relics of like their violent past right of the indian wars etc etc right yeah, you're just trying to trying to get rid of anything that referenced the native culture okay so at this point over like hundreds of years of interaction between europeans and native americans really it's been a series of defeats and massacres and genocides right um towards the native americans and specifically in this point the late 19th century it's the ending of the indian wars obviously the united states government is victorious there's really not a way that the native american people can stand up against you know um or at least in a long-term sense so you have to wonder like what is the purpose of forcing this assimilation like the united states has what it needs in, in their eyes right like what else is there to gain i wonder if it's yeah. that's a great question that i don't have an answer to but no I, you know yeah. i'm like that's like one of those questions yeah. on my mind it's i'm a, like it's a great question like what is the need for this when you you have the land i wonder if it's just them looking towards the future trying to eliminate any future conflicts mm. um, you know that idea we got to kill the indian well, to save the man, and, 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 and I, I've also read that relationship. I've also read that like uh, that they really felt well, like like Pratt thought he was doing the right thing here, mm -hmm. you know. And, and a lot of the people who, and also a lot of those people are religiously affiliated, right? Mm -hmm. And they very much believe that they're they're bringing civilization and salvation mm. by doing this. And so it's we're we're helping them where they can't help themselves. I think that was a pretty prevailing idea, at least like culturally. And so I think maybe. They, they kind of write it off as like, we're helping them help themselves. Yeah, absolutely. You know? And that's, that's a good you know? point that maybe I, I glossed over was people like Pratt really did think they were doing the right thing. Like they, they weren't going in there to physically kill them. Like yeah. this was, I, I would assume like Pratt during his time would be considered a progressive. Like, you know, he is trying oh, yeah. to help yeah. native peoples the way that he thinks they need to be helped. Wow. Um, and I, I know this movement was very popular with um, like, women's groups mm -hmm. and now so some of these women's groups are like early temperance groups um obviously some of these people are kind of pushing the boundary on like what's going to become the suffrage movement and so like oftentimes it's like you know how can we 
improve our society. You think of like prison reform during this time, yeah. right? Helping the poor, you know, and so it, it's kind of like their uh, humanitarian, you know, focus, I guess. Absolutely. That's a that's a really interesting way to view it is this was kind of on the progressive end of the spectrum. Um, which, I mean, using present views, you're like, how? <laughs> yeah. But I guess back then the conservative thing would have been war, right? So the mm-hmm. idea of like, hey, let's let's use schools. Sorry, I'm going off. No, no, you're I'm kind good. of pulling this, but that just is mind-blowing. So we have the creation of these schools. We've talked about the idea of killing the Indians, saving the man. And one approach that they're going to do is through a militaristic approach. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, we've mentioned. I mentioned before that this idea that native peoples were products of their environment, of their quote-unquote savage environment. And so the perception for people like Pratt was that uh, they were without order, they were without discipline, they were without self-constraint. Okay. And so they needed to run a systemized school uh, that was very militaristic. Mm. And so you see a lot of these schools... Uh, students are divided in, into battalions. Oh, wow. Into so, groups, yeah. Very militaristic, yeah. An example of this is, can be found at Haskell in 1886, so two years after Haskell was, was founded. Uh, one of the problems they were dealing with at Haskell was, uh, and, and I didn't mention this, but you got to keep this in mind. These are students from various tribes. Right. All over the country. You know, it's not just one tribe. Right. And so the students would continue to interact solely with their tribe. Okay. And in order to break the Indian, in order to assimilate, these schools wanted them to interact with different groups. With each other. Right. And so Haskell formed uh, five companies to break up these tribal associations. Yeah. Uh, They made them sleep with their battalions okay. so not with their tribe right they made them eat with their company and uh this this was their way of breaking that but it's it's quite funny uh a student named esther burnett horn who was from the shoshone people uh she attended Haskell, and she explained how this kind of backfired um and i'm not going to go into a lot of detail on this but sure. I, I think it's important to note that she says that quote uh they were curious about uh, each other's tribal culture and language Thus, they learned about others' traditions. Huh. So, in quote. Um, and so, what this did is it, it helped establish a larger pan-Indian identity. So, it, it's wow. this, we have to, mm-hmm. stay. that's interesting. So, yeah, yeah they, hmm. they went from their tribal identities yeah. to a more pan-Indian identity, which I think is important to note because it's going to provide unification amongst right. the students as they go through these experiences. Um, it'll play a larger role in in Native American politics right. well, as Native groups come together. Once they eventually leave the school, because they're going to stay at the school forever, right? Yeah. Wow. And so yeah, really uh, you have yeah. these, once again, these these tribal, uh, the, or these tribes are broken up by these, these different battalions and companies. Um, another example of this militaristic approach uh, can be seen at Haskell in 1922, where the school partners with the Kansas State Militia. Oh, wow. And so uh, in 1922, they formed a two-week summer training course uh, where students participated as members of a special machine gun company. And so this was during the summer. Uh, yeah. uh, there were, I don't know if I have the number here, uh, but there were, I want to say, less than 100 students who participated. And so just this relationship between the school and the state militia yeah. being very 
you know, uh, mm. very close ties to each other. Um, and then another example is when those drills failed and students were misbehaving, they had a military style court that would determine the student punishments and infractions. It very much so. It, it, so, and, and the whole thing would be the military has order, there's a process, mm-hmm. there's, you know, um, and I guess in a sense you think of like, even something like modernly like, like like boot camp, right? Let's let's kind of break you down and build you back up into the soldier we want, right? Absolutely. And going back even to Pratt, I mean, that's his background, his military. Absolutely. Yeah. This is what's, you know, this was his model at Carlisle. Right. And therefore it became the model for Haskell and others. I really had no idea that he, it was such a singular project. He, he you know? had a huge role yeah. in the very beginning. So now is that why also like they... I know, like, playing sports, like, at Haskell is American football, right? Was that kind of also in terms of, like, the... Because I know, like, a lot of early sports in schools around the United States, not just in boarding schools, had a lot to do with, kind of, this militarism in the 20th century. That, yeah. That rugged masculinity kind yeah, of thing. the right? competition the, and yeah. the training, the physical training yeah. that came from it. Yeah, so I'll mention this a little bit later, but, you know, you mentioned this, Ethan, in, in your master thesis, but... With football, American football in particular, uh, kind of being a way to uh, retell the Indian Wars, mm. um, but also it's going to become very popular for Native students because it's it's their opportunity to go up against the quote unquote dominant society to show their value, to show their worth, sure. uh, in some cases show their you know way of fighting back when they're successful. Um, but it's also, you know, from a, from a American perspective, another way to assimilate them. Hmm. Um, so we will touch on that in, in part two. Fascinating. Nice. Yeah. And so, uh, so back to the military style courts, um, they were often, they were, uh, had students on the court that would, that would decide the punishments, um, and such. Um, and it's important to note that most of the punishments according to student testimonies, uh, were, forceful you know they the students recant uh physical abuse they uh, talk about verbal assault physical labor as punishment and these are things for for disobedience um, okay for breaking school rules things like not speaking your your tribal language Hmm. so that so so speaking your tribal language would be like an i guess a an infraction infraction yeah. yeah um i mean i'm surely there's cases of people where they had like smuggled like native contraband like mm-hmm. something from their tribe in i, I have trying imagined. to run away sure uh just yeah. straight up disobedience to right. teachers and such and they're also just kids too yeah. at the end of the day it's like they're 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 being stripped of their culture but at the end of the day they're also just kids and sometimes they're going to be kids yeah and know? it is important to note that you have a wide range of students here yeah um, you've got young kids that we would consider elementary you know today all the way up to your typical middle high school and even some kids that are you know early 20s wow you know um that are all here and so the different ranges of students you're going to have some different responses absolutely you know just like all students we're familiar with you know sometimes students just don't you know blend well with authority and so that's going to create a lot of a lot of problems so you have those physical abuse uh sure. we're going to come back to to labor little a little bit on uh, right. later on but you can see how you know today we we don't we don't physically abuse no, students. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Not. I mean, obviously, yeah. you know that was a part of the school system right. with paddling and such. For sure. But, I'm 
can't. It's virtual teaching. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Now, um, I, I, I know this isn't your focus, but like, uh, the, you have to think who is being attracted to work in these schools, right? Mm-hmm. Did you come across, like, was this a lucrative job? Was this kind of, for lack of a better term, like, the rejects of teaching or just a mm. passion project for people? From, from my research, the assumption that I came to was that it kind of was like the rejects. Okay. Um, people who were definitely not qualified. You know, some of these teachers were not people who went to a, what they were called a normal school for, for education. Um, some of them were military people mm-hmm. uh, with that military background. But for a lot of times, there were vacancies that needed to be filled. Mm. Um, some of these teachers were maybe old, retired teachers. But it definitely wasn't the cream of the crop. Mm. Right. For sure. Okay. Um, another thing that I want to touch on um, as part of this context, which is building towards Native attitudes. And that's, that's what I really want us to get to. Is sure. you know, I'm giving you all this context so that you can see what the students were dealing with. Um, another thing in order to help assimilate students was the prohibition of returning home. You know, Mm. we talked about how one of the big failures of reservation schools were they were too close to home, too close to those influences. So sending students hundreds of miles away and then prohibiting them from returning home. Um, at Haskell, it was a requirement for students to stay for four years without contact. So not even could they send letters? I mean, or letters or? they could send. Okay, yeah, they they couldn't return home wow. during breaks. They had to spend the first four years at school. So strictly so, to sever those ties. So during like terms breaks off. I mean, they just stayed there. I guess yep. they uh, they stayed there. There's wow. a program that we'll talk about here in a moment called the outing system. Okay, um, but yeah, they 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 stayed at the schools. That, that, that's such a years. clear regardless of age it'd be really wow so you could be a young kid mm-hmm. so i mean that that pretty much shuts the door on this i mean it'd be hard to argue this wasn't an assimilation tool when right. when there's that four-year requirement yeah. right that's pretty clear that's, yeah absolutely yeah. where else does that happen right right yeah so four years uh they had to they had to stay at school um We'll talk about this in a little bit, but obviously that's going to lead to a lot of kids trying to run away. Absolutely. Uh, a lot of homesickness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also, after that four years, it was still difficult to return home. Um, in some cases, families had to get permission. Get this, guys. They had to get permission <laughs> from the local Indian agent or the reservation superintendent before a child could be sent home. That, wow. It's like an act of God. Yeah, it's so you're a, yeah. totally talking about ignoring parental rights. Absolutely, yes. yes. Like, yeah. like, wow. You, in order to see your children, you had to get permission from... Your child, yeah. <laughs> from yeah. from a local agent. And even in times of family tragedy, like you still had to get permission. This is a massive growth of federal bureaucracy. Like mm-hmm. just the, the this this uh so so what's called the Office of Indian Affairs at this point or yeah okay the but Bureau like of Indian but Affairs. think about like like within just this 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 wing of the federal government they have to accompany all of these tribal reservations and then all of these schools like this is this is this is a lot of red tape 
Absolutely. You know, and uh, and it's not about giving parents the right to see their kids. You know, it, it's mm. it's the opposite, right? So you can you can get the idea of the the resentment that's brewing, right? Absolutely. From both parents. Absolutely. Students, communities at large, you know, huge boundaries being crossed. Right. Parental rights being restricted. Um, another thing is, um, you know, even if students got permission, it was still difficult. Uh, in terms of financial, because students were required to pay their way home, <laughs> or the families themselves were required Come to, on, man. to pay for it. So yeah. students had accounts, wow. like school accounts, and you had to have the funds available uh, to pay for that transportation. The school wasn't providing it. And what if they weren't able to then? Yeah, so if they weren't able to, students stayed at school. They didn't go so, home. And that seems like they're doing everything they can to make that the, the conclusion. Yeah. I can't afford to get home. So yeah. all these obstacles are put in are put in place. Wow. And so you, we mentioned the outing system, right? right. So um, the schools did provide uh, an opportunity called the outing system developed by Richard Pratt at Carlisle. Um, and this is basically very similar to what he first did by sending those students out into the workforce. Okay. And so the outing system really has three forms. Um, and the whole purpose was to continue education outside of school. Okay. You know, get them some experience in society. And so the first and most basic form uh, included students spending the summer months in a middle-class farming household. And so they would have middle-class families that mm. would allow uh, students to spend the summer with them, uh, living and learning the daily work on a farm. Okay. That was the most common. Uh, the second form placed students in those same households, but for a longer period of like one or two years. So instead of the summer months, you're going to be in this home for one to two years. And, and you a, might go to a local public school Okay. if you were with that family. And it's supposed mm-hmm. to be for them to kind of really put these skills into practice? Absolutely. To, um, to better their English. Okay. So really full like immersion. Mm-hmm. Now, were they treated well? That depends, you know, some, right. some families, there are instances of being treated well. There's others where students basically recant just being taken advantage of as labor. Because I can see, like, wow, yeah. in, in a way, I mean, you, you could, this could be, this could mean a lot of things. This could mean, like you said, free labor, you know. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of examples of young women being sent to homes, uh, basically as nannies and, like, having to take care of children, like, all these children. Wow. And, uh. There's a lot of letters of, of these students basically talking about how overwhelmed they were and how these uh, these mothers would basically just leave them with all these responsibilities. So wow. really just kind of getting, yeah. they're now like an unpaid servant. Right? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. And so the second form of being there for longer periods of time wasn't as popular because you have to think you, you have to have people willing to commit right. to, to house, to feed, to right. you know deal with these native people for a long period of time. Um, so it wasn't as as common, but it, it was uh, a part of the program. And then the third form of the system was uh, placing students in an industrial or urban setting to practice those skills other than farming. Okay. Okay. And so, according to Pratt, the this whole system was important and beneficial um, because, in Pratt's eyes, it helped them practice their English, helped them earn money, it helped them build relationships with whites, which he saw helped eliminate prejudice. Okay. Now, once again, those good intentions that Pratt has, not always necessarily practical, okay. as we mentioned, some of these students being taken advantage of. Right. right. Um, I have to, I mean, I have to imagine that 
what this program is assuming is that all of the moving pieces, all the people who are taking on these native children are going to be good actors, right? But I have to imagine the 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 potential for abuse, mm-hmm. whether that's physical or I mean, we would hope not sexual, but I'm sure I'm sure it certainly happened. And then, you know, are who's who's whose side of the story are they going to take, right? Yeah. Probably not the native child, yeah. right? Right. Child one, native two, you know, probably not going to take them very seriously. Right? Absolutely. And so you have to imagine that there were probably some really tough situations these kids were put into, you know. Wow. Yeah. So another uh, part of this labor that I mentioned uh, that was pretty common in the schools uh, was simply just child labor. Mm-hmm. Um, students often completed the essential tasks of the schools you know things like milking cows killing chickens splitting the wood cooking in the kitchens so they so they were kind of self-sustained yep okay yeah because once again you know the 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 labor that the school had through teachers and such wasn't always the best right lots of vacancies so once again they're utilizing the resources they have which in this case were students lower Mm. the cost too right yeah yeah and so like i said you have those basic those basic tasks which and a lot of times go hand in hand with the skills that they are learning. Sure. Um, I mean, there are classes on cooking. There's classes on doing laundry. Um, but we also see those, those, this, this idea of labor go above and beyond to things that are more physical. Uh, at Haskell, once again in 1910, male students constructed a two-story addition. <laughs> They're doing legit construction. They're, yeah. Two-story nice. addition. They laid flooring. They fixed roofs. They built a hay barn and furniture. And they laid 600 square feet of cement sidewalk. Oh my goodness! So you're talking this like this is a major project. This is major well, stuff. Nah. You know, they're they're being exploited for their labor in the name of civilization. Right. In these institutions that are trying to eradicate their culture. Now there's all those. <laughs> have you guys used that um, that read like a historian lesson on uh, Stanford? The, yes. Or it's it's the the photos right of of mm-hmm. the different kids and mm-hmm. so like when one of them like they're they're farming in very the very like anglo-american way right and and there's one where there's a scene of like obviously the hair being cut and um so you like you said they're very much they're very much uh performing like white duties i guess if that makes sense right and once again this is just to sometimes it's punishment but also to you know put into put into practice those skills that they are learning in the schools to try to assimilate and, 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 and do in doing that and like taking photos of kids doing that i have to imagine is that's being put into press being put into newspapers there's probably people who are donating money of like mm-hmm. look at the great work that these that you know mr pratt is doing with these these native mm. kids you know um the spin the spin so, exactly i think well and i think very my assumption here is and you know, kind of question too is like the schools are going to be profiting then off of this free labor because they're not having to pay for actual laborers to come in and to do these additions or to do this work, Mm -hmm. you know, and they're doing it in the name of, you know, civilizing, right? And so are there other ways in which, like, the schools are profiting? Um, that, that is the main way that I know of. So they Um, weren't, like, they weren't, like, selling products, but they are more, like, saving money mm -hmm. by having the students do Lowering that bottom line, yeah. Yeah, the, uh... Because once again, this is government funded, so yeah, and obviously this is probably something that's not on the priority list of the U.S. government. So it's probably getting the scrap pile of the uh, of the federal budget, and so being able to save money uh, any way possible is super important. I mean, 
you see with Carlisle, for instance, for example, you know, using old army barracks as the school. So they're definitely trying to save money in any way. Okay. Um, now, you, you mentioned when you talked about your thesis that um, eventually there's kind of a, a self-determination movement and they're going to, native groups are going to kind of reclaim these schools mm-hmm. for their own. Um, so how long of, for how long of this timeline were the schools like you're describing now? So uh, most of the schools created basically 18, so Carlisle's, Carlisle's 1879. Right. Um, so basically from 1879 to about 1929. Okay. Somewhere in that range is where okay. this, this policy of assimilation is predominant, you okay. know, in the 1920s. And then uh, into the 30s and early 40s, there's a shift, okay. a more self-determination movement. Okay. And then as I'll mention, it shifts back to assimilation mm. for a couple decades, and then it shifts back to self-determination. So quite a long history of, you know, the overall timeline, right. a good portion of it right. is this uh, assimilation. So um, I think we're almost done with part one okay. in the context. Uh, so I want to kind of close off with another part of Native experiences at the schools, which unfortunately was death. Mm. Um, and so through this assimilation education, these deadly attempts to kill the Indians actually resulted in some deaths of indigenous children. Mm. Um, these boarding schools were overcrowded, uh, which led to the outbreaks of many diseases. Sure. You got influenza, whooping right. cough, measles, smallpox, right. tuberculosis, trachoma, all of these very deadly diseases. And you're bringing groups of kids together from all across the United never States. never interacted with each other. Right, and so just think of the gene pool and what they could bring with them, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's crazy. And, and, and then uh, can you imagine being an, a native parent, right? You're not allowed to see your kid. And then you just find out they they got sick and died. Absolutely, whooping cock, cock yeah. off, whatever you know. That was a that was a big part of the resentment of sending students. So in 1885, one year after Haskell opened its doors, a cemetery had to be established on the grounds. Um, wow. As a final resting place for the children, um, and it's interesting to note. So, of the graves, the students' age uh, ranges from six to 26 years old. Oh my goodness. So I mean. The young and even, you know, near our age, yeah. you know, late twenties, right? You were still susceptible to many of these, many of these diseases. Mm-hmm. And think about it, you're dying so far away from home. Well, it's crazy that that's that they don't send your body back to your people. In some you know? cases, they did. Okay, um, but just the fact that cemeteries become a common feature, yes, in the boarding schools. Right. So at right. Haskell, there's a hundred white grave markers. Uh, oh my gosh. Arisen from the earth as monuments not only of the lives of these students, but really as a reflection of the assimilation practices. Absolutely. Because as you look at these 100 grave markers of students ranging from 6 to 26, you'll notice that there are 36 different tribes buried side by side. Wow. Which is really interesting because remember, these are people who, these tribes are different. We've mentioned this many times, you know, they have different cultures different histories 36 36 different tribes wow of, of students of, of people buried side by side show you this assimilation practice absolutely right? mm-hmm. um now we do know that that number at haskell is low right only 100 buried on site 
More students died than are buried there. As Andrew, you pointed out, some of those bodies were sent home um, so that families could perform their ritual burials. Yeah. Um, in other cases, gravely ill students were sent home to die to not increase the fatality rates. So uh, this was a problem they knew about, and so they punching up the numbers here. Yeah, they if if you were gravely wow. ill and they knew it, they would send you home. An example of this is is a young woman named Mary Mitchell who was a student at high school. Uh, she'd become seriously ill during her two years, and in 1931 she was sent home to the surprise of her father. Uh, her father, who uh, was a pretty, I believe he was a a boarding school educated man. He he wrote a letter to a friend of his, which was. Uh, uh, a superintendent at another boarding school okay. talking about his surprise. He had no idea that his daughter had been ill. You know, so, once again, this goes to the lack of communication. Right. Mm. And so she was sent home to die. Uh, I think of the danger of that. Like, n- number one, it's so tragic that it's, you know, we've not only killed the Indian, we've killed the man too. Mm-hmm. But then, I mean, imagine if we're sending this sick person home to your tribal community. I mean, it can inflict, yeah, it can inflict your talk about cultural destruction, right? You know, yeah. imagine what 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 could be passed on to the rest of the tribe. Absolutely. Now, I don't think that was the intention. Okay, at sure, all. sure. Uh, once again, I think the main intention intention was to simply just decrease the numbers, sure, uh, because things were already bad. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, that is a good uh, reflection on a possible outcome, right? Hmm. And so, um, there's one statistic I want to leave us with. And that is, uh, in, in 1929, the government did uh, investigate federal Indian administration, health, and education through a report called the Miriam Report. Okay. And what the Miriam Report found was that American Indian children were six times more likely to die at boarding schools than the rest of the children in America. Wow. So Yikes. six times more likely to die. And so... Wow. Once again, you know, the government's attempts to save the Indian through assimilation was killing Indian children. Wow. Wow. I don't, I don't have anything brilliant to say. I'm just, I'm shocked. Yeah. yeah. No, that's kind of where I'm at. I'm like, I didn't realize. So I think, I think that's going to bring an end to part one, kind okay. of on a somber note. Right. Uh, but yeah. once again, what I hope you guys take from this part one are the experiences of native children of native parents and communities and how that's going to foster their attitude. So I'm going to ask you guys a simple question. Yeah. How do you think these children, parents and communities felt about these schools? Just based off of what I've told you. Pissed off. Is that, is that... <laughs> well, I think the word that comes to my mind is powerless. I think of right. the parents of, right. You don't have, I'm like, man, I would, I would go up there and I would go get my kid, but how do you get there? So I have to imagine this is going yeah, to okay. spark this, let's reclaim this for our, our people, uh, the self-determination movement. Absolutely. I bet that's going to happen through the graduates, right? In a way. In a way. Oh, I'm excited so, so, so we have a cliffhanger. The, yeah. We have a cliffhanger, but next time we're going to see part of the solution. Yeah, right? next time in part two, we're going to look at the specific attitudes of those individuals and we're going to look at the rise of the self-determination movement and how these indigenous peoples took control of these government boarding schools. Take the power Man. back. So we're going to find out here in a couple minutes, but you guys are going to have to wait two weeks. Yeah. So once again, thank you guys for, for tuning in to part <laughs> one of Spotlight number nine. Um, if you like what you heard, if you had questions about what you heard, 
please uh, follow us on social media. Let yeah. us know your questions. Uh, you know, let's start that dialogue with us. We'd, we'd love to hear you guys. Yeah, just on social media to search for Make History Dope again. Pretty sure we're the only ones. <laughs> only ones. You can find our merch that way, too. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. So. Bonfire.com. Cool Absolutely. Well, uh, this has been another episode of Making History Dope again. And as always, stay safe, stay sane, wear a mask. Thanks, guys. Thank you.